debating whether they should be granted the same rights as humans rests on a huge misunderstanding about what humans are. Coming up this month on the Culture File Debate. And a huge misunderstanding about what AI is. Collaborating with AI from creative experiments to messy ethics. The Culture File Debate AI Special, Saturday 6.30pm here on RTE Lyric FM. It'll be generative. Well, that's what's happening on the radio this weekend, so don't forget to give that a listen. But you are in the right place. That doesn't mean you have to miss out on all the best of this week's Culture File pods, which this time take us from Tel Aviv almost to Los Angeles, not to mention the Everglades and County Clare. It's a trip, a trip we start this week on Culture File with the first in a new series of stories about scent and memory from the writer and critic Orit Gatt. In this piece, she sets off to explore one of the key smells of her Tel Aviv childhood. Olive oil soap. Chlorine, fresh-baked cookies, or the salty beach air. I read this list in an article in Scientific American about the relationship between scent and memory that I'm not sure why I clicked on. It's this thing I often do. Try to understand large, abstract notions by absentmindedly googling them. When I am preoccupied by something, I will google it, just to see that I'm not alone. I'd read silly lists like nine ways to move on when your heart is broken. I'll scroll through emotional descriptions, ways of seeing how other people describe or explain the world. I still think about one article in The Atlantic titled Why We Cry on Planes that I read back in 2013. It read, Crying, whether happy or sad, is the external result of an internal body shift when the sympathetic nervous system gives up control of the body. Of course, it is also an external body shift, You're moving through the world, perhaps too quickly. I read these things because their language often feels suggestive and weird to me. It's functional lingo, but because I'm searching for something that feels emotional, somehow the words take on an extra load. I'm reading, writing, thinking about scent and memory, but I do not need multiple scientific articles about the relationship between scent and memory. I already know. Still, I dwell on the language and word choices. In Nature magazine, I read about how the sense of smell is specific, which helps to explain how our smell memories can be so precise. In Scientific American, that list with chlorine and beach air and cookies, which feels like it describes multiple lives. I started thinking about scent and memory because I was looking to explore something about language, nouns, the meaning of experience and emotion. Instead, I found everything I remember myself. A bar of soap from childhood the smell of a hallway I have not walked down in years, a bottle of perfume now sold cheaply on eBay, the way an artwork smells, how green tea may be described, the scrambling for description, a memory, a feeling, a sense of the past. And that feels worth telling. But I'll start with the soap. When I lived in Brooklyn, I used to take my American friends on tours of Sahadi's, the Middle Eastern grocer on Atlantic Avenue. I'd explain what Zatal's spice mixture is, a kind of Palestinian thyme, fragrant and often mixed with sesame seeds. I'd help them pick elastic, salty, braided Armenian cheese, show them which packages of pita bread, tahini, and date molasses I thought were best. Next to the tahini and date molasses shelf was one of the very few non-food items I would pick up there, olive oil soap. I can't remember the brand name, only remember that it came wrapped in stiff, dark green paper, identical in color to the bars themselves. I can smell it as I'm typing, 
remember what it felt like to stand at the busy shop and hand over a bar to a friend, see their faces shift in surprise as they brought it close to their noses. People often describe things, perfume, laundry detergent, candles, as smelling like soap. I know what they mean, a white, fresh, perhaps clean scent, but that's not soap. To me, soap is olive oil soap. It's salty, earthy, a bit sour. It does smell like laundry, but only because when I was a child, we used to hand wash our clothes with it. Olive oil soap is multi-purpose. It's used for cleaning with a damp cloth brushed against a big square bar kept by the kitchen sink, for showering, for laundry. My grandmother used to say it was the best beauty product, which I looked down at as a teenager, preferring instead products that emulated Western brands like a shampoo called Hawaii that was everywhere when I was a kid. When I was young, going to a Tel Aviv grocery store meant having just one kind of each product. There was one type of cottage cheese, and the same dairy also made the milk. There were two options, 1% and 3%, and both came in plastic bags, as did the chocolate milk the children drank for breakfast. Bread was only white or brown and came sliced and packaged, or it was bags of fragrant pita from the bakery down the road. Shampoo was Hawaii and soap was olive oil soap, unbranded and unpackaged, sold by the unit out of a box of rectangular bars. Every kid brought the same lunch to school, a half pita bread with hummus and a pickle, a half pita bread with chocolate for the picky eaters. But it all changed quite quickly. A succession of right-wing neoliberal governments, a flow of money into the economy, a desire for the kind of plenty that people saw when they traveled to Europe, to the United States. By the time I was a teenager, the shops offered almost everything. Even the olive oil soap was rebranded. It was all natural, local, artisanal. And then I moved to the West. Going to Sahadi's with my mates, I wondered if I was self-exoticizing, but I felt like my growing up was so different from my friends, and I had to somehow explain it by showing something that was mine, by sharing it. And I think back to how I was as a teenager, buying Hawaii shampoo, snickering when my grandmother exalted the benefits of olive oil soap. I didn't like it because it felt local, familiar, and I was young, and all I wanted was new and different and very far away. Now that I've lived half my life away from where I'm from, I go to a natural health food store in London to buy olive oil soap, the earthy, dark green scent of it filling the shower with a sense of where I was from, which is very far away. Everything that is familiar is new to me now. Orit Gat there with the first of her scent stories, and we'll have the next of those in a fortnight's time. Next, the family enterprise of the O'Hallorans. Emma O'Halloran in recent times has been transforming into an opera composer, notably by coaxing the works of her uncle, screen and theatre writer Mark, onto the operatic stage. Earlier this year in New York, the pair opened an operatic double bill of trade, which also spawned a film, we're talking extremely ecological work here, and Mary Motorhead, the talky version of which was a Bewley's Café Theatre hit. The double bill opera moved to LA in April thanks to a unique operatic initiative, as Emma O'Halloran explains. There was like a production company in New York called Beth Morrison Projects. They're an indie opera company. Um, Beth is just a trailblazer of a of a human being. She set up this company with a view to like producing new exciting works of opera and opera theatre, which would be kind of like projects that might fall through the cracks. They're not exactly musicals. They're not exactly theatre. It can be a hybrid form. And now, to rest. 
around the end of 2017, she started a new project called Next Generation, which was a competition to kind of find, you know, emerging voices in the field of opera. You see, I'd begun to hear people call me Mary Motorhead. My impression of opera, um, like older opera being about, you know, where women are usually victims of violence and then they're murdered and they're, or they're hysterical two-dimensional characters and I, I kind of wanted to do something different. And I remember seeing Mark's play Mary Motorhead in Bewley's and um, I think it was Cora Fenton was um, playing Mary Motorhead at the time and she was amazing, like knocked me off my seat and I thought this would be a great subject to kind of explore in opera. To be honest, I didn't have a huge experience with opera beforehand, but my vague impression of it was that it used very flowery language and it was very hard for me to find a way into it and to connect with the characters. With Mark's language, it's really simple and it's in the language that is spoken day to day. And I'm from Athlone and Mary Motorhead is about a woman from the Midlands. Um, so I connected with that um, emotionally. Yeah, there was just something really exciting about like trying to set language that we hear in day-to-day to to music. In many ways I feel like I'm kind of mirroring, I'm just like slowly adapting Mark's output. Um, (laughs) You know, I think Mary Motorhead was one of his first plays, you know, and he, he wrote that very quickly and it did a particular thing, but with trade he spent a lot longer on it and he workshopped it with Tom Creed, who is the director of the opera as well. When we were working on the libretto, the I I'm great at cutting words and <laughs> um, might not be so great at writing them, but um, I, I'm happy to cut them where I'm like, oh, I know I can I can do something with the music that will convey this. I would have done a lot of instrumental music, so you know, a string quartet or like a different chamber ensemble, and it wouldn't have words in it. But actually, when you're given the words to work with, you know, they they sort of tell you what to do. So I can write a lot faster when I have words and drama and there's a magic to it as well. You know, when you get you spend a lot of time on your own as a composer in your room trying to write the notes down. Um, But when you get into a room with other people and everybody's got their own vision for what a what a work can be, it's really exciting, actually. I think the way that I write best is I use Ableton, which is um, a digital audio workstation. So if I was to write the notes on the page, I actually get so bogged down with trying to make it look nice on the page that um, I start to forget that it's actually music that I'm writing. When I'm working in Ableton, I don't really need to think about that first. So I'll write everything in and I've got loads of... um, sample libraries that can can really give a a pretty good sense of what an orchestra or an ensemble is going to sound like and I'll do that the whole thing in that and then I'll start to notate it afterwards and with your voice then singing the parts is it um yeah (laughs) (laughs) so there is a version of of Mary Motorhead and Trade that's all uh, Emma O'Halloran in various guises (laughs) 
yeah there was you know for for opera companies it's it's really helpful to have like a section of the music um written before before the rest of the piece so that you can send it to different presenters and you know or you can do fundraising or or that sort of thing so it's kind kind of like a trailer and Beth asked me to do an aria from trade and like to see if we could record it. Mark Kudish, who is um, plays the older man in trade and he's a, like a Broadway star. Um, it was kind of like a weird time where everything had stopped. Broadway had just shut down and Mark was just in his apartment. And I asked him would he record um, this aria that I'd written. And he was like, look, it's very complicated. Could you record yourself singing it first and then... Um, and then I'll listen to that and I'll record it. So there is one aria of me in my tiny voice singing a very powerful um, baritone aria. Um, and Mark used that then to, to record the proper one. <laughs> <laughs> Morrison Projects also run a thing called a Producers Academy. So it's like an eight-week course where they go through all of these different aspects that you might need to know in order to produce your own work. It's more common now for composers to kind of be a little bit more entrepreneurial about um, getting their work off the ground. So I think it's definitely something I have. I have a few ideas in mind and, and I've been talking to friends about um collaborating together so I think it I will pursue it it'll just take you know every offer takes a couple of years to to get going Life was laughing. <laughs> I didn't care. I didn't give so you're not going to work your way through all of Mark's catalogue I was hoping you'd get to I don't know do you remember one of his early plays called Too Much of Nothing I think it's called Too Much of Nothing it's in Beaulieu's as well did you oh, ever I see that one no, I I haven't seen that one. The next thing would be, you know, to create something from scratch with him. Okay, so with Mark, he he is currently himself and Tom Creed are currently in the beginning stages of a new play um, that Mark's been telling me about, and it sounds and I was like, that sounds like an offer, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mark and Tom will probably make a great play together out of it, and then I'll probably um, ask Mark will he then convert it into um, a libretto, and he'll probably write a screenplay out of it as well. Known Mark, um, <laughs> so <laughs> he's very environmentally conscious. <laughs> he is. He is. You should recycle your work. Emma O'Halloran there, and that Mary Motorhead trade double bill opens in L.A. in April, if you're free. And next, the return of Paddy Woodworth from his winter travels, which have inspired his latest choice for his shelf of essential and rewarding nature writing. For March 1st, 2023, Paddy has chosen The Everglades River of Glass by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas for Elevation 2, The Naturalist Bookshelf. What do we look for when we travel? Paradoxical though it sounds, I think we look for home. I know of no more perfect moment while I'm lucky enough to travel to remote, apparently exotic natural landscapes than when I find myself thinking, but this is not foreign to me at all. This is so familiar. I belong here, 
in a sense I cannot quite express, but which reaches very deep inside me. Is this déjà vu about some past life? I rule nothing out, but I suspect the explanation is much simpler and much more telling. It is a sense of direct contact with the living pulse of the natural world, from which we are mostly so alienated, but which is, after all, the same pulse that flows through our own veins. Home is where the heart beats strongest, perhaps. I haven't had this experience very often, but it's happened to me more than once in Florida's Everglades. Wandering amongst an abundance of water birds, kayaking in the liquid green light of mangrove forests among indifferent alligators, stretching out on my back on a coastal prairie meadow for hours, watching kites, ospreys and hawks float across an endless sky. I feel doubly fortunate to be able to revisit these experiences back home in Ireland in the company of two great writers. I've made a brief reference on this programme before to Peter Matheson's superb novel, Shadowlands, so evocative of the Everglades Wilderness Waterway region. But this evening, I want to take down another book that is exceptionally successful in making this region flow onto the printed page. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, 1947 study, The Everglades, River of Grass. The author was a diminutive woman whose signature large dark glasses and floppy hats prompted one reporter to describe her as looking like Scarlett O'Hara played by Igor Stravinsky, but she was not to be trifled with. She bested a US Army colonel at a public meeting, and she staged a play about Al Capone, unfazed when his people showed up at the premiere. Born in 1890, she packed a dozen lives into her 108 years, as a reporter and fiction writer, as a very early feminist, and as a campaigner for the rights of Native and African Americans and migrant workers. But she is best remembered for this celebration, at once joyous and scholarly, of the natural and cultural history of the Everglades. Before this book was published, the general public perception of the Everglades was of a noxious swamp, good only to be drained for sugarcane and holiday homes. Since then, it is widely recognised as a uniquely precious and diverse natural landscape. Her book's impact in stalling its degradation has been justly compared to that of Rachel Carson's 1960s Silent Spring in persuading governments to ban DDT. Nevertheless, the Everglades remained threatened by the sugar and property industries and were repeatedly trashed until 40 years after publication, Stoneman Douglas returned to the fray. She was instrumental in persuading the federal government to make the Everglades' sadly diminished heartlands the site of the biggest ecological restoration project in the United States. She died shortly afterwards in 1998, before she could see how much that project itself would be threatened by climate change. I cannot think of many other books that make natural science sings so sweet and clear to the general reader. Her account of the distinctive geology and hydrology of the Everglades is exemplary in bringing huge spans of time and vast tectonic shifts within our grasp. She performs the remarkable trick of making ecosystems that constantly shift their shapes sharply focused in our mind's eyes. 
Her striking central image of a river of grass, which she coined, is aesthetically appropriate, if slightly inaccurate botanically. It glides through and unifies every page. Myriad plants and animals populate them vividly. So do the Everglades peoples. Douglas was way ahead of her time in recognising how Native Americans had reshaped this environment more than once, and in celebrating how successful they were in resisting European incursions. But science and history have, of course, advanced since 1948. But that does not undermine her work's integral vision. I'd like to conclude with a paragraph that speaks to me of a timeless afternoon spent in a wet meadow near Big Cypress Swamp. An Everglade kite and his mate, questing in great solitary circles, rising and dipping and rising again on the wind currents, can look down all day at the water, faintly green with floating water lettuce, or marked by thin standing lines of reeds, utter their sharp goat cries, and be heard and seen by no one at all. Paddy Woodworth there reaching up to slide the Everglades River of Glass by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas onto the Naturalist bookshelf. And finally this time, The Accompanist Features. A new documentary from fiddler and filmmaker Donal O'Connor looks at the musical legacy of guitarist Dennis Cahill, who died last summer. Cahill created a unique body of work with Claire Fiddler Martin Hayes, initially in duet and later as part of the trad supergroup The Gloaming. His music making all the more striking for its modesty and spareness. Hayes's goodbye to the guitarist after half a lifetime playing together came in an open letter Letter, which gives the title Litero de Horror to the documentary, as director Donal O'Connor told Culture File. Dear Dennis, we knew each other for over 35 years. We really were great friends. When Dennis passed, Martin Hayes, his, his longtime uh, musical partner, um, wrote a, a letter, a very poignant and emotional and, and moving letter to Dennis. We started on a musical journey many years ago in the bar rooms of Chicago. We didn't think we'd ever make it out of those bars to the concert stage. It appeared on on Martin Hayes's um, social media channels on his on his Facebook page, and and uh, um, it it received a, a quite a remarkable reaction, probably because uh, of the nature of the letter and how unusual it is to do such a thing, uh, but also how open and honest Martin was. Uh, essentially, it was a love letter from one man to another, uh, um, one no longer with us. And in the letter, he he described uh, how they they first came to make music together and the journey that they subsequently uh, travelled on, and uh, the mark that that Dennis had left on on the world of traditional music and and on the world of accompaniment in traditional music. It was a very very touching letter from Martin, and it really struck a chord and and and. Uh, it stayed with me and uh, I thought it might be a nice way for us to give a gateway into the world of Dennis and his background.
Dennis grew up in an Irish household in Chicago. His parents were from West Kerry, from the West Kerry Gaeltacht, Kirkagrina. He grew up um, studying rock and, and jazz guitar and hadn't really connected with his Irish roots that much. And in fact, it was said that he would say things like, we can't all be Irish-American or Italian-American. Somebody's just got to be American-American. <laughs> that was the kind of approach he was taking to life. And then, completely by accident and fortuitously, he, he met Martin Hayes when Martin moved to Chicago and they lived across the street from each other. started to play some music together and formed a band which was a, a kind of a jazz, rock, Celtic fusion band, perhaps ahead of its time, called Midnight Court. They played for a number of years and then they parted ways. Martin moved west to Seattle and Dennis continued to play on the scene around Chicago, more in the, in the, in the rock and jazz side of things. And then uh, when Martin had um, recorded his first couple of albums, he was looking for a, a, a long-term touring partner, somebody who could commit. Uh, and he thought of his old friend Dennis back in Chicago and they reconnected and uh, off they went. What Dennis did was he approached the music from a very uh, minimalist point of view. And I think he was listening to lots of of jazz, lots of Miles Davis and Bill Frizzell and lots of different types of jazz that created space in their own form. Within the instrumental dance music of Ireland, there's a lot happening. There's a lot going on in terms of uh, ornamentation, uh, in terms of lots of 16th notes. It's very busy within itself. Uh, and to have an additional busy accompaniment instrument can sometimes be great and give it energy and, and vibrancy but qu quite often it's too much and I think Martin realised this very early on and both he and Dennis developed a very unique approach to the music which stripped out lots of the notes and it wasn't just Dennis in terms of the, the strumming and the chordal side of things Martin was doing the same with the melody line and removing ornamentation and cuts and rolls and triplets they both found a place where they could get to the essence of the melody and that Dennis's accompaniment would support that, would scaffold it in a very beautiful and measured way, uh, which then would give Martin the space to, to project the melody out there into the stratosphere that really connected with people. It really, really touched the chord at that time when they made their first record. During the, the course of making the documentary, we found lots of archive of... of, of Martin and Dennis very early on and their music in terms of fiddle and guitar duo was not vastly different from lots of other fiddle and guitar duos at the time but you can really see the development in their approach and in their philosophy uh, on the on, on the, the, the makeup of accompaniment and, and lead melody line uh, and that, that uh, development uh, was quite staggering over the years. If you look at the gloaming, there are the two major figures in the gloaming are, are Martin and Irlo Leonard in terms of Irla and the vocal music uh, and Martin and the instrumental music. And, and they're supported by 
the, the three other brilliant musicians, Thomas Bartlett's role was to transpose what Dennis had, had created on the guitar with Martin and to bring it to the piano, which which is a you know a different sound, perhaps a more a bigger a bigger sound and a more dynamic sound. If you look at the other seminal guitarists in Irish traditional music, you, you think of people like Paul Brady and Artie McGlynn, uh, of which there are many young and and not so young guitarists out there who play like them, and Steve Cooney the same. Whereas Dennis hasn't created the same band of apprentices musically and there's probably a good reason for that because what Dennis did was not very easy to approach the music in the way that Dennis did takes years of listening and learning and courage to step back and to really minimalize what you do and so I think Thomas Bartlett on piano was perhaps one of the very few who had studied what Dennis uh, had had achieved in terms of accompaniment and tried to project that on his own instrument Dennis was was very cognizant of what went before uh, and had studied that in great depth. He had to push all of that to one side and proceed with his own take on the music. And that's something that doesn't happen very, very often. If you think of um, accompaniment in traditional music and the players that have done that, there are very few. There are Alec Finn on bazooki, Donal Lunny on bazooki, and the aforementioned guitarists. So to, to carve out that niche for oneself takes a brilliant mind and a great technical ability and and Dennis certainly had both. Donal O'Connor there on the gifts of Dennis Cahill and Donal's film Litter O'Dochara is on TG Cahar this evening at 9.30pm and on the player after that. And that brings to a close this pod-only edition of the Culture File Weekly. Thanks to Garrett Vinn and the Macaulay Library at Cornell Lab of Ornithology for the Everglade Crane soundtrack. Don't forget to check out this month's Culture File Debate, which is available on your podcastatron of choice, where we get some crampons into the world of AI creativity. Your let's call it normal Culture File is back on Monday evening on the air and Tuesday in the devices. Till then, bye now.